of wish Alec was here. Talk to him about Kansas City, how I'm from Kansas City, Missouri, and not Kansas City, Kansas. Uh, it's not as funny without Alec here, but yeah, I'm, uh, I'm Kyle. I'm on staff here at Cornerstone. I'm really pumped to be here with you all. I don't know uh, if you guys knew this, but we are about halfway through the book of Nehemiah. We are going to be in chapter 7 today, and I, I want to give a, a fair warning up front that uh, I, um, I, kind of like leading up to this uh, sermon, I got lost in the history of, uh, of kind of this time period and what is happening in Scripture, and so I think my, my sermon might reflect on that. I, I think it's just really cool how um, the story of the Bible just kind of comes alive, comes together, um, and just really paints this really powerful picture, and so... I think, I hope that is reflected in my sermon today. But I want to start, I, I'm just kind of slowly just uh, getting to know um, this culture more and more, and I, and I think I want you guys to, to know a little bit more about me, so I'm going I'm to talk about a um, person that means a lot to me. Uh, it's not my wife. Um, I kind of, whenever I was building up this, I was like, oh, I wonder if they're going to think this is my wife. It's actually about my friend Bill. Um, Bill is, is one of my best friends. We've been friends now for probably... 10 years, I think. This is Bill. This is me. This is younger me. Um, I have earrings. Um, this cool purple jacket. I was kind of cool. This was exactly, this was probably six years ago. And anyways, Bill um, is this guy on my other side, obviously. Uh, and I met Bill his freshman year. I met Bill. Uh, we were all, um, there's a bunch of people. We were going to dinner at Plaza 900 on the University of Missouri's campus, and it was probably the first week of class, and there was a big group of us eating, and I saw Bill sitting at this um, kind of center thing, like they have like probably eight chairs, um, like eight high-top chairs. He was sitting there. He's eating by himself, so I just went up to him. I said, hey, man, my name's Kyle. He introduced himself, um, said his name was Bill, and, and I said, hey, do you want to come eat with us? And he said, sure. Um, he's a really quiet guy. I'm not sure why he said yes, but he said yes anyways and, and came and joined us. And kind of over the next couple months, uh, I got to know um, this man. Uh, he had accepted um, Jesus as his Lord and Savior probably um, a couple months before coming to campus. Um, he had put faith in Jesus, um, but his life uh, was still uh, in ruin. He had a lot of um, wounds in his life, both physically and emotionally, from uh, his dad and um, friends, just people that were supposed to love and care about Bill. And um, he struggled a ton that, those first couple years. He struggled a lot with uh, spiritual attack, with, with lies, um, with, again, just more uh, physical abuse. He struggled with, with substance abuse. He... Um, he was just a man that lived a life that was just very difficult, very tumultuous. And a lot of people encouraged me, um, a lot of leaders in my life encouraged me and said, um, maybe that I should not spend as much time with Bill. Maybe I should not um, be putting my time and effort there. Maybe there wasn't ever going to be fruit that would come of, of building my life into this man, that, that he would just never be able to move past these addictions. And uh, I remember, like, wrestling with this a ton. I was like, God, what, what do you mean? 
Um, what do they mean whenever they say they don't want me to spend time with this? Like, if there is one thing in my life that I feel like, man, God had, had put a passion on in my life up until this point, it was that I needed to be in this man's life. And so I rejected uh, what these people were telling me, and I continued to just make sacrifice after sacrifice. That looked like staying up until two in the morning. That looked like um, going to AA meetings, that looked like going to, to different rehab meetings, that looked like praying with him, that looked like um, advocating for him to come and live in this house that, that I lived in at the time, that looked like um, just being with him whenever he needed that for a couple of years. And over time, what, kind of, what we got to see in Bill's life is God transforming who he was. That God, um, that on the outside he might have looked well put together, but God was, was kind of just restoring. God was rebuilding um, inside of him. He, he was building him from the inside out. Um, I, I share this story a lot whenever, I, whenever I'm raising support. One, because Bill is a dear friend of mine. I just, like I re, even repeat there, it's like I've just seen God show up in his life time after time after time. Um, it's been a fun addition to add Lucy into those meetings because she did not know Bill beforehand. She knew Bill uh, probably like five or six years after I met him, and she had no idea any of these things had gone in his life. All she saw um, was this amazing man of God, this, guy, this man that was, he was soft-spoken, um, but he was deeply faithful. Um, he's loyal. He, he just loves the Lord. He, he's constantly pursuing God and what God would have for his life. And if you if you had come and met him four years before that, you would have not believed what God could do in his life. I think I see a lot of even this story in Nehemiah with Nehemiah. Nehemiah coming over from Babylon um, in chapter 2 and just seeing this city that's laid in ruins. Kind of leading up to uh, our trip to SOS, I went to SOS over spring break, I was reading a ton of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah takes place 150 years before Nehemiah. And in this one, God has this reminder. God, ha, um, God is speaking to his people after the Israelites have been um, taken captive by Babylon. And he gives them this promise. It's Jeremiah 30, 18 to 22. And it says, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will restore the fortunes of the tents of Jacob and have compassion on his dwellings. The city shall be rebuilt on its mound and the palace shall stand where it used to be. Out of them shall come songs of thanksgiving and the voices of those who celebrate. I will multiply them and they shall not be few. I will make them honored and they shall not be small. Their children shall be as they were of old and their congregation shall be established before me and I will punish all who oppress them. Their prince shall be one of themselves. Their ruler shall come out from their midst. I will make him draw near, and he shall approach me. For who would dare of himself to approach me, declares the Lord. And you shall be my people, and I will be your God. God is making this promise that he is going to restore these broken people. That though that they had rebelled against God and that they deserved everything that had come from them, he says, I will restore you. I will make my name great again, God being that person. And says, I will draw you all near to me. And I think that's just a really powerful 
promise that God makes, that God says no matter how far that we have wandered, how far, how much we've rebelled, how much pain that we've, that we've gone through, God says, I can and I will restore you. Will you all pray with me? Uh, Jesus, um, this morning, would we um, just see you shine through this list of names? Would we see you shine through this passage? Would we see just the work that you're doing um, in our lives, in our friends' lives, on campus, um, in Bloomington Normal? Would we just see um, that your gospel is one of restoration? Amen. So I want, I want to start this morning a little bit, like probably 90 years before this. I want, I want to start in Ezra. And, and while I was kind of doing research for this, for this passage, they talked a lot about how uh, Ezra and Nehemiah at one point probably would have been on the same um, like parchment of paper, same roll of paper, that this would have all taken place at the, at the same time. Not at the same time, but they would have been written roughly the same time, time period, 90 years apart. And even though Ezra, I'm pretty sure, comes after the book of Nehemiah, I think it's the next chapter. I'm gonna, no, it's not. It's right before it, of course. Um, so Nehemiah, Ezra the Nehemiah. So Ezra. In the opening of Ezra, we read about how uh, this person named Zerubbabel led about 42,000 Jews out of Babylon back to Jerusalem, back to this city. And where that temple and the, and the city had been destroyed, they come back and they rebuild this temple. That God had kind of put it on their hearts to come back to this people group, um, come back to this area and build the place where God would eventually hopefully meet them. That's where the temple is where um, they had their, their tent of meeting. And so that's where God would meet with them. In the very next chapter, or in the middle of it, in Ezra 7, we learn that God had kind of moved in the heart of this man named Ezra, who was in Babylon to make this long journey back to Jerusalem. And why would God do this in a person? I think this parallels a lot with Nehemiah, even Nehemiah being burdened for this people and wanting to come back. And then in, in Ezra 7, 8 through 10, we read this. Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in the fifth month of the seventh year of the king. He had begun his journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month, and he arrived in Jerusalem on the fifth day of the fifth month, for the gracious hands of God was on him. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and the observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and its laws in Israel. And in that last verse... I want to focus on this a little bit. Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. That Ezra had just studied God's word, that he wanted to teach it, and that he wanted to go back and he wanted to start preaching. He wanted to lead the word in the temple. The temple was now rebuilt and that he wanted to bring spiritual life into that, into that building. And that's what I want us to fast forward into is that the only thing before this wall had been built was the temple. That all these people had just been kind of gathering around the temple. So the church is there. God's church is there. God's people are there. And then Nehemiah now has finished the restoration project on the wall. And now we hear, here we are in chapter 7. 
So what is Nehemiah's plan going forward? What, how is he going to go about trying to, to restore this place? Well, I think firstly what we see, and we're going to read after this, but firstly I say, think Nehemiah enlists leadership. We start in in chapter 7, verse 1. It says, Now when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hananiah, uh, or sorry, Hananiah and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. So he starts with some administrators. He gives gives, uh, power to these men that are close by. He he says that even in, at the end of chapter 2, the reason that they were qualified to be leaders is, is that they were faithful and God-fearing. That they were faithful and God-fearing. That that is ultimately the two qualities that Nehemiah was looking for in leaders was that they were faithful and God-fearing. And then he goes about appointing the singers, the Levites, the priests, and the temple servants. He also starts to appoint the gatekeepers and the guards. I think the reason that these are important to focus on is that these singers weren't just people out singing. Um, they weren't just, they weren't there for entertainment. No, these were, these were worship leaders. These were people leading uh, songs of worship and praise in the temple. The Levites were the ones, they were the priestly group. They were either um, administering sacrifices or they were helping attend to the priests who were doing that that the gatekeepers and guards aren't just random people, that they were actually the gatekeepers and the guards of the temple, and now Nehemiah has moved them out away from the temple and put them on posts, on roaming posts on the wall. That all these points of leadership, all these points, um, all these appointings of people are all coming from the church, all coming from the temple in Jerusalem. That these uh, men and women um, had already been serving God and that that is his first point. That is, that, is, um, that is what God wants to initiate is, with, is through the church. I think what we can, can see from this is that holistic change of a city involves the church. I think we'll see in this passage that it begins and ends with worship. It begins and ends with the church. I think secondly, Nehemiah establishes the citizenship of its people. I, I went back and forth on whether or not I was going to read the next uh, 60 verses for you of just names. It's just names. I got, I got a book of names as well. Um, Matt had a book of names a couple weeks ago. This is another book of names. Some of you that have probably been reading along with Nehemiah, read Nehemiah 7, and you're like, Kyle, that looks a ton like Ezra 2. And you're like, I, it's like, yeah, it is. It's the same list of people from Ezra 2. That, that in this long list that would go Ezra into Nehemiah on this piece of parchment is, is that Nehemiah goes back and writes down the same group of names. Why do we have this list of names twice? Why, why is it important to know who these people are? I want to read the first four verses 
And then I think we can answer that question. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles, sorry, to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of genealogy of those who came up at the first, and I found written in it, these were the people of the province who came up out of captivity of those exiles from Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each of his town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Ramiah, Nahamiah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispereth, Bigvi, Nahum, Benan. Now, I want to just tell you guys right now, this is, not, this is a different guy named Nehemiah. Apparently, Nehemiah was a popular name back then. So, so this Nehemiah came with the original people 90 years before this other Nehemiah would come to rebuild the wall. And I want to highlight right at the beginning, after it says, the city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. That the city had this wall, it had people, but the rest of the city was in ruins. And then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles. Then God put it into my heart. This is Nehemiah saying that God put this plan in his heart, that God had burdened Nehemiah for these people. In the same way that maybe I had been burdened for Bill, that God, I feel God had really put it on my heart that I needed to minister to this man. Who are you burdened for? It could be a person, it could be a city, it could be a place, it could be um, just a group of people. Who are you burdened for? I've been really blessed this semester to get to, get to know and become friends with, with my friend Marshonda. And uh, I was really moved by her prayer last week. She asked us to pray for specifically that she would get a job in Bloomington Normal for a first or second grade position in a low-income area where kids are under-resourced. She had an incredibly specific prayer for an incredibly specific group of people. I don't know all of Marshonda's story. I don't know um, the different wounds she has or the different highlights she has. But through all of these different things, it has shaped and molded Marshonda into a person that wants to reach those people. That they don't maybe get the attention that they need, the love that they need, the affection that they need. I don't know. All of these different things, Marshonda wants to be a light in that place. That that is the type of people that God has put on her heart where she wants to make a difference. And she's going out on a limb and she's praying very specifically of what she would like. And I think God sees our prayer requests like that. I think those are the type of prayer requests that God wants to answer. Because it's not a selfish prayer. It's a prayer of like, God, this is what I feel like you are doing with me. So either help me do that or close this door and lead me to where I'm supposed to go. But Marshonda has recognized the people group in which she is burdened for. And she believes that through good teaching 
and that through the power of the Holy Spirit that, that she can change people's lives, that God is in the process of changing people's lives. I th- another thing I think this list does, I think it shows that, that God sees them. God sees us. God sees you. Like I said, the, this passage mimics Ezra 2 with just some minor changes or updates. It, it's just numbers. Like maybe people came and joined or, or people left. Um, but just numbers. Jerusalem was the special place for God's people. Jerusalem was the, the hub of the nation of Judah. That was the place of worship. Like this was one of the special places. And these people, these like roughly 42,000 people left their home now. A lot of them maybe had been born in Babylon or at least spent the last 30 years of Babylon. And they left Babylon, the safety of that, to go into Jerusalem, to rebuild this temple and to be in a place where they thought they were closer to God, that they made great sacrifice to leave this place that had been comfortable, to go where they felt like God was leading them. I think this mimics, this list I think mimics even Hebrews 11. I don't know if you guys know much about Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 is also known as just the hall of faith where it just kind of goes through all of these amazing figures in the Old Testament and praises them for their faithfulness in God that God would provide for them. Now in the Hall of Faith, you don't see this list. I think somewhere I read said there's like 130 names in the book of Nehemiah. Or maybe just in this chapter, I can't remember which one. 130 names seems like a lot, but if you were to read this, I think it was gonna take me nine minutes. I I timed it out and I said, I can't. I cannot fit nine minutes of just name reading um, in my sermon. Um, I think God cares a lot about these people and I care a lot about them, but not enough to read them to you. But I think that they are important because they are in this list twice to say that these people had faith. I think Nehemiah, I think God also wants to showcase that these people are valuable, that God values them. That Nehemiah goes back in the past to paint a way forward. That the people that he wants to build up the citizenship of, of Israel, of Jerusalem, are people that were faithful to God. And that God values them for their faithfulness. That God values you for your faithfulness. Whatever that looks like, just stepping out in faith, God values you and values that. That this list is not just here by happenstance. That we can just glance over it, that we can just gloss over it and just read through it and try to get done with as fast as possible. You know, if we're going through the Bible in a year plan, anytime you come across a group of names, please look up why is this group of names there? There's always a reason why this group of names is there. So once we fast forward um, these 130 names, I think Nehemiah brings them back to worship. 
if, you, if we hop forward in Nehemiah 7, 7, 70 through 73, it says, Now some of the heads of fathers' houses gave to the work. The governor gave to the treasury 100 derricks of gold, 50 basins, 30 priest garments, and 500 meters of silver. Um, I like this kind of like, this isn't like a humble brag because he doesn't name himself, but at this point, Nehemiah is the governor. So he's even just stating how much he gave. Um, Nehemiah is trying to express his humility by not, not naming himself and just saying the governor. And I, I looked it up, and apparently 100 derricks of gold is something like 25 pounds of gold is what Nehemiah donated. And some of the heads, so fast forward, 500 meters of silver, and some of the heads of the father's houses gave into the treasury of the work two, or 20,000 derricks of gold, 2,200 meters of silver. And what the rest of the people gave was 20,000 derricks of gold, 2,000 meters of silver, and 67 priest garments. So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants in all Israel lived in their towns and when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. Citizenship and leadership were together, and that can make a city. But it takes worship to bring that city into a godly nation. Uh, this... Uh, Preacher John Stuart Mill wrote this. He, um, I, don't, I don't have the quote up there, sorry. Um, the worth of a state in the long run is the worth of the individuals composing it. But the worth of the individual depends on his or her relationship to God, and it involves worship. If individual godliness declines, the morality of the nation declines. A few things indicate what kind of relationship people have with God. I want to focus on the beginning of that. It says the worth of a state in the long run is the is the worth of the individuals composing it. That the worth of that city at its heart is the worth of, this, of these individuals. Of these 130, I know it's not individuals, but it's individual names and their families is what make that city special. That's the collectiveness of this entire group that makes cornerstone special. It's the entirety of this group, all of our gifts, um, all of our sacrifices, all of the different things that we are willing to offer to God and to his area that are, that, that is what is going to make that city special. That's what can make this campus special. That's what can make Bloomington normal special. It's what can make this room special. It's all of us. My friend Garrett is here, and uh, he has been here twice. La last, time I, last time he came in, um, I asked him, or he had told me right beforehand, he's like, oh, I knew where this was at. I had biology. I have biology in there. So I asked him, I was like, was, is this better or worse than biology? Um, and uh, he thankfully said, he said, this is better than biology. Um, so we're, do we're doing a good job, y'all. Cornerstone is better than biology class. Um, 
We are more engaging. Maybe the music is better here. Hopefully the content is better. Um, I don't know uh, how the speaker compares to the biology teacher. Um, But I think what he said is is that, um, he's like, this is different than other churches that I've been to, is that you all are are bouncing off each other. You all are talking about people in the auditorium that you know. Like Like you guys actually know each other. You care about each other. You're friends. That the collective of this group makes this place special. That anything else, this is just a classroom on Illinois State's campus, but a collective of people makes this into something more. That we are more than biology, that we are more um, than a group of people, just simply a group of people. We're a group of people that is trying Um, to worship and follow God. I think in this worship, uh, worship in in the end of chapter seven, uh, Nehemiah gives us three examples of of how they do that. Um, Giving. Did you see all of of the money, all of the clothing, um, these different things that people sacrificed to see this city rebuilt? Now I understand that you all probably don't have a lot of money, that college students aren't really known um, for having exorbitant, exorbitant amount of money, of gold, um, of silver, um, but what you all do have is an exorbitant amount of time and energy. I understand that a lot of you think that you don't have a lot of time, but I promise you that you have more time now than you will ever have in your life, that you can use that in ways to shape our campus, to shape Bloomington Normal in a way that gives glory back to God and not to ourselves. That you can sacrifice your time, your energy, your resources to see restoration around you. I think even just simple ways of like, um, uh, we, um, shoot, dang man, this is what I get. I told Lucy I wasn't going to bring my chapstick because I play with it. So now I played with this, and then I broke it. So this is Lucy's fault, y'all. This is Lucy's fault. That's what I learned right there. Um, hopefully that doesn't come off again. Um, uh, but yeah, our, our corner has started going to Abundant Life. Grace leads that ministry. We go over to Abundant Life, and we, and we serve uh, in their church. We serve in their thrift shop. Um, if you want to check out, Riley has this sick Harley Davidson shirt that he got at the thrift shop. Um, he wears it all the time now. But anyways, we go there just to be a part of just bringing a little bit back to Bloomington Normal, that we want to see, um, we want to see that city change. We want to see... Um, those people change, and we want to serve alongside ministries that are doing that. Where is God maybe asking you to make sacrifices? If it's not money, what might he be asking you to sacrifice? Immediately after they talk about their sacrifices, they start going into what this celebration is going to be. So apparently right here is, it's the seventh month, it's October, November area, when Israel was expected to celebrate these three feasts, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. All y'all have been in Leviticus, so apparently this is Leviticus 23, 23 through 44, where it kind of lines out these three um, feasts, these three parties. 
Um, There could have been no better time for Nehemiah to call the people together to honor the word of God, to confess their sins, and to dedicate themselves and their work to the Lord. What began with Nehemiah's concern in Nehemiah 1 led to construction 2 to 3 in conflict, chapters 4 to 6, and now is time for consecration. And we'll get a lot more into that over um, the next couple weeks that, that Mike even pointed out last week that we move from over here we have this time of, of restoration of the wall and now it's moving into the restoration of its people. That this wall is nice. It's nice for protection. It's nice to indicate to everybody else that, that Jerusalem is back, that it, that it can be back to being a power. But ultimately, God is interested in the restoration of its people. I, I want us to, as a, as a community, I'm, I'm really kind of passionate about this, because and I'm not totally sure what this looks like all the time, of like, what does it look like for us to adequately celebrate? What does it look like to celebrate what God is doing in people's lives, to come alongside, um, come alongside them and to really just praise God for what God is doing? that we would celebrate the work that God has done in our lives. I think we do this a ton at, like, whenever we have baptism services, which I think are amazing. I think we do this sometimes at Corner. But what does this look like for us to do this weekly? It's just to celebrate, take a step back and to celebrate, to be thankful for what God is doing and celebrate that. Like I said at the beginning, I think if we see this is, is that... At the beginning and the end of chapter 7 of Nehemiah, one that, chapter 7, indicating the beginning of the restoration of its people, this chapter begins and ends with the church. The building starts with God. It starts in that temple. It starts with God and its people in the church, expands outwards, They start to fill the city with people, and then they celebrate. The church comes together, and they celebrate what God is doing. It starts with church workers in this chapter, and it ends in worshiping God. I think that's what I liked about that quote The worth of a state in the long run is the worth of the individuals composing it, but the worth of the individual depends on his or her her relationship to God. That the city wasn't just a bunch of individuals, but it was a bunch of individuals that were faithful to God. And I think the city of Jerusalem in this chapter reflects our own lives. That whenever we put our faith in Jesus, that we, are, that, we are, that we believe here that you are instilled with the Holy Spirit, but you are still a desert. You're still broken ruins, just waiting to be restored. That the second that we put our faith in Jesus, our problems are not gone. Our walls, our homes, our buildings, like the buildings, the homes of our lives are not just instantly rebuilt. The story of the Bible says that the world was created good, 
that man was created good and that we were image bearers of God, worth dignity and value, that we have intrinsic value because we are a reflection of God. But sin, but this desert, this brokenness is brought into our world in the form of death. And it says that we are spiritually barren, and I think that is the desert, all of this broken rubble, that is the sin in our life. And then I think we have hope, we take hope that whenever Jesus comes, he didn't see the world through the lens of good and bad people. He sees it through the lens of lost people. Jesus spends his time loving the quote-unquote bad people. Jesus was fullness of life in human form, so when he died on the cross, he took death with him to the grave. That's what we believe here at Cornerstone. And then three days later, new creation began with a resurrected Jesus. Not a soul, not like a ghost, that his resurrected body was there. That we get to see God restore that which was broken. And then Jesus pours his spirit out into the church for a resurrected people. Not so that we can escape this brokenness, but that we can go back into creation for restoration. That that is the goal of us as the church, is to bring life wherever we are going. They are restored people who are empowered to restore the world. That that is what the gospel is about, is that we are restored people to go into the world and to restore So I have this uh, thing I call lessons from the list. Even though I didn't go through this list of people, that is where we were focused on. So lessons from the list. People, first and foremost, people are important to God. People are important to God. Do they matter to you? Do people matter to you? I, I don't know that anybody in this room would say, no, people don't matter to me. But do we, do we show it? Restorative process, it takes sacrifice. It takes sacrificing of money. It takes sacrificing of resources. What are you willing to sacrifice for that? And then I think we see it's a long, it's a long process, but, content, but God continues his good work. I think I wrote that really weird. I don't know what I wrote there. But that's what I'm trying to say is that it's a long process. That this book between Ezra and Nehemiah, that the, the first time this p- group of people was written down between when it was, is 90 years. They moved, these people moved from Babylon to restore the temple. And then 90 years later is whenever the city is starting to be restored. Will you sign up for this work? Will you sign up to wait potentially 90 years to see something happen? Will you sign up for this work? People are important. The restorative process takes sacrifice. And that process, it's long, but God continues his work. Whenever we were down in Memphis, we went to the Civil Rights Museum. And and we just walked around the museum. And we just got to see image after image after image 
um, and quote after quote after quote of all of these people making huge sacrifices of just a lot of pain, a lot of turmoil. Um, it, went, it kind of started all the way back of like whenever slaves were being brought over and then it goes all the way through um, the life and death of Martin Luther King Jr. And it's just a really sobering, a really intense um, time. And I think what we see what we could see in this and what we even see about the civil rights movement is is that what they were doing is that they were fighting for people. They were fighting so that they could see a people restored, that, that people were not being treated the way that God had intended them to be treated. That large sections of our country just weren't even being viewed as having intrinsic value because they were made in the image of God. I think whenever we see Martin Luther King, I think we can see that people mattered to him, that he was burdened for a people, that not only was he a part of that community, but he had a burden for that he was willing to sacrifice everything that he had. They talked about all the different times that um, bricks were thrown through his windows or that there was a bomb threat or bombs going off near or in his home or near or in their churches that he was willing to sacrifice his own life, that he was sacrificing um, time, energy, resources. He was sacrificing everything to see people restored. And it's a long process, but it's a good work. That Martin Luther King, even in one of his last uh, sermons or last um, kind of like public talks, he even said, I'm not going to see the end of this, but the work will continue on. And I like this quote from one of his sermons that he said, on the one hand, we are, all call, or we are called to play the good Samaritan on life's roadside, but that will be only an initial act. One day we must come to see that the whole Jericho road must be transformed so that men and women will not be constantly beaten and robbed as they make their journey on life's highway. True compassion is more than flinging a coin to a beggar. It comes to see that an edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring. That yes, he wants to help the hurting individual, but he wants to shape the thing around that so people are not being hurt. I think if you asked any member of our staff team, we would all say the same thing, that ultimately we want to see God transform the college campus in his image. That starts with individuals, but we are unsettled with just individuals. We love the individual, but we want to see campus changed. And that starts with us. That starts with the church. That starts with this group of people that we can be a part of that change. That the same way, similar to, to Martin Luther King, that like, yes, in, in my story with Bill is that Bill was important to God, so therefore he was important to me. I sacrificed a ton. I don't say that to say, hey, look at, look, like, look at how good I am. Man, he emotional. But no, it's like, look at how good God is that he does this, that he changes people. And the process isn't done. 
we're still continuing. Would you guys pray with me? Um, God, God, I just thank you this morning. Thank you for, yeah, just what you're doing um, in our church, what you're doing on campus, the way that you are restoring us to your image, the ways in which that you, um, yeah, you see us as valuable. You see us as individuals. You see us as a community and that you desire that to change. Not to change to be better, but to change to be, to be more like you. Amen. So uh, I forgot to say this. The staff will be on, on the side if, if you would like any prayer. Um, we'd love to be able to, to just pray and be with you all.